opening your Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. If I am asked what is your favorite passage in the Old Testament, it always has to be Isaiah, chapter 6. I've probably spent more time in the last half a century teaching and preaching from the sixth chapter of Isaiah than any other passage in the Old Testament. It is, in my opinion, a critical passage. And it's a passage that I think is timely because it teaches us what to bring to church in 2019. We're going to consider Isaiah's autobiography of a time when his life was unalterably changed. December the 7th, 1941. A day, the president said, that shall go down in infamy. The bombing of Pearl Harbor was a day in which our history was forever changed. The same could be said for June the 4th, 1944, or for September the 11th, 2001. These were days of destiny. Isaiah chapter 6 was a day of destiny for Isaiah. We read it in Isaiah chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading through verse 8. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, and by the way, that's 740 B.C., by the way, 8th century before Christ. He said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, the sense here is antiphonally, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, that means burning ones, the angelic creatures of God, whose assignment seems to have been to protect the holiness of God, one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, 
Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Isn't that an incredible passage of Scripture? Isaiah's account of his day of destiny. He would never again be the same. I have one major thesis this morning, if you can call it that, and I don't mean for it to sound formal or academic, but I have one goal that I want to drop into your heart this morning, and it's this truth, that what you bring to church in 2019 will both limit and define what you take home. Therefore, it is incredibly important that you bring the right things to church. And if we can bring to church what Isaiah brought to church, then we can take home from church what Isaiah took home from church. And the question is, what did he bring to church? And we want to unpackage that this morning as we consider that, realizing that you don't want to limit what God wants you to take home today. And so uh, let's, let's look into this text and consider what Isaiah brought to church. Now the background is that it's uh, 700 years before Christ. That's the sad announcement has been made to the children of Israel that their beloved king, Uzziah, is dead. When Isaiah read the Jerusalem Gazette that morning, now you realize I'm using Vincent's sanctified imagination here, but when he read the Jerusalem Gazette that morning, the blazing headlines would have read, the king is dead. Beloved king is dead. Now he was a very beloved king. He, he unlike so many of the other kings of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel, he was a, a man who really sought to follow God. He was a rarity among the monarchs in Judah and Israel. In the line of David, in the line of Josiah, he was a man who really did have a heart to seek to follow God. He was anointed king when he was 16 years old. He served with his father for a while, but for 52 years he served solo as the king of Israel. A long reigning king. Can you imagine that? I mean, we have a president for four years, maybe eight years, but most of the people who would, who would have read this or who would have heard Isaiah speak, uh, most of them would have never known but one king, King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was a beloved king because uh, not only because he tried to move the nation of Israel back away from idolatry, back to a monotheistic faith and uh, a living faith, but, but he, he, the country prospered economically under his leadership. Uh, they prospered politically and militarily under his leadership. They regained the prominence that they had had under a man like David when he was king. And so when, when the headlines read, Beloved king is dead. 
when Isaiah read that, that day, his heart was crushed. You see, Isaiah was not only a friend of the king, and he was, but many Bible scholars believe that Isaiah actually had blue blood in his veins, that he was actually related to the king. And so when Isaiah woke up that morning, read the headlines, saw that his nation was in, was in much trouble, his heart crushed within him. And he brought that broken heart to church. Can you think of a better place to bring a broken heart? That's number one, if you're filling in the blanks. The first thing Isaiah brought to church, he brought a broken heart. You see, when Isaiah thought about who would fill those shoes, those huge shoes of Uzziah, he couldn't think of anybody. Jotham, Uzziah's son, had been, had been serving recently as a fill-in for the king because you see Uzziah's life even though it was a a life of, of, of greatness at the very end Uzziah decided to usurp the high priest do you remember that and he went in to offer a sacrifice instead of the high priest and God struck him down with leprosy and so Uzziah this great king spent the last years of his life as a leper and everywhere he would go, he would have to, uh, to carry with his entourage and underneath all of his uh, royal regalia, he, everywhere he went, he would have to do what all Jews would do and cry out, unclean, unclean. But here he is. Heart is broken. And when he gets into the church, he has a vision. And that vision is the vision of God. Actually, John tells us it's a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. And he sees the Lord. And guess where the Lord is? Seated upon a what, church? Starts with a T. Upon a throne. And what God was teaching Isaiah is this, that the throne of Israel may be empty, but the throne in heaven is still occupied. And the throne in heaven will continue to be occupied. And, and, and the greater king, even though Uzziah was a great king, the greater king is still alive and he is still sovereign and he is still in control. Right. And so the first thing that Isaiah brought, he brought a broken heart. Somebody said, it's amazing what God can do with a broken heart if you give him all the pieces. You know, I look over this congregation this morning and I haven't been around you enough to know you personally, many of you, but I can promise you one thing this morning. I can almost bet you that on every row in this church this morning, there's a broken heart. You see, I, I discover that broken hearts are quite common. I remember when I was being ordained, back right, right after Noah got off the ark, and uh, I was sitting on the front row in Macedonia Baptist Church, and my father in the ministry uh, was preaching my ordination. And I remember he looked down at me, and I, I mean, I'm a naive, I'm a naive 22-year-old kid, and uh, 
he said to me, Tommy, I want to tell you something. He said, if you will always preach to broken hearts, you will never lack for an audience. Boy, have I found that to be true. To the point that in my pastoral ministry, I tried to find the broken hearts. And after you've been a pastor a while, you recognize them. I recognized Barbara over here, whose husband retired and was on a mission trip out to the Navajo Indians and fell off a ladder and died. Godly man. I look over here, I see Robert, who's one of the leading brain surgeons in the city where I pastored at the time, whose own daughter was dying of a brain tumor and he could do nothing about it. I saw broken hearts. I saw Ann, whose teenage son was breaking her heart. She was a single mom trying to raise a teenage son, and he was got, he'd gotten on drugs, and, and he was breaking her heart. And I could see the broken heart. I want to tell you, dear friend, if you brought a broken heart this morning to church, you brought it to the right place. The psalmist said, God is near to those of a broken heart. The second thing he brought to church was this. He brought a bent knee. You say, what do you mean by that, Brother Tommy? Well, look what he says. I mean that he brought an awareness of the holiness of God. An awareness of the holiness. What did he say? Holy. What did the angel say? Holy, holy, holy. I like what R.C. Sproul said. Notice what he did, what the angels didn't say. The angels didn't say, wrath, wrath, wrath. The angels didn't say, love, love, love. What did they say? Holy. You see, that word holy captures both love and wrath. It defines the very nature of God. Do you know that the holiness of God is the only attribute of God in the Bible that is spoken of like that, holy, holy, holy? Uh, the Hebrews had a way of when they wanted to emphasize something, they would say it twice. That would make it, that would give it great, it would be like us underlining it or italicizing it. For, for the Hebrew mind, you said it twice. And that, that gave it elevated status. But if you wanted to make something absolutely superlative, you said it three times. And so the angels are crying out, not once, not twice, but three times. Holy, holy, holy. Listen, if you come to church with that heart attitude and that theological acumen, you are a prime candidate to have a moment of destiny. My heart grieves when people come to church and they view God like some kind of Santa Claus. That they view God like some kind of, of deity who exists to make them happy. That they view God as some kind of genie that you rub three times and get three wishes. My dear friend, the God of the Bible is not that kind of God. The God of the Bible is a holy God. And that word holy means separate. 
God is separate. He, he's not just a demigod. He's not just a bigger, uh, a bigger example of us. He's God. A number of years ago, I was pastoring in Tennessee, and we have a large youth evangelism conference every year in Nashville. That thousands of teenagers come. And on that particular year, a well-known preacher spoke in Vanderbilt Stadium to thousands of teenagers. And when he finished speaking, he gave this invitation. He invited those teenagers to come forward and have an existential experience with the Holy Other. Now, don't that just make you want to speak in tongues? Don't that just thrill you? An existential experience with the Holy Other. Well, my response then was probably about like your response now. What in the world does that man mean? Well, I've got 40 plus years under my belt to reflect on that. And a lot of theological study. And you know what I've come to realize? I would not have said it that way. But what the man said was exactly right. God is W-H-O-L-L-Y-O-T-H-E-R. God is holy other. You can't compare him to anything. There is no comparison he is God. When you come to church to meet that kind of God, if you bring to church that bent knee over the worship of that kind of God, you're a prime candidate for a moment of destiny. So he brought a broken heart. He brought a bent knee. Let me say thirdly, he brought a bowed head. You say, what do you mean by that, Brother Tommy? Well, I mean that not only did he bring an awareness of the holiness of God, but he brought an awareness of his own sin. Of his own sin. Uh, do you hear what he said? He cries out and says, Woe is me, for I am undone. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Undone. I am lost, one translation says. Uh, one translation puts it this way, woe is me for I am naked. Now what does he mean by that? It means that he's totally exposed. It means God sees his heart. I, I've flown more in the last six years than in all the previous years of ministry. Going back and forth to India, I do pastor training over there uh, several times. Uh, the last six years, uh, a bunch of times. And um, I'd never gotten used to going through security. If you travel, I think I can get an amen out of you here. I, I used to love to fly. I hate it now. It's just a necessary evil to get where you're going. And I don't like those x-ray machines. I mean, you stand in front of somebody you've never met, and there you are exposed before them and the whole world. Now, I'm willing to do that. 
because I want to fly safe, right? They want to check you and see if you got anything on you shouldn't have on. I got to thinking about that. I wish I had a little handheld spiritual x-ray machine. Here it comes. And now I'd have to use it on myself first. I understand that, okay? But I could stand back there at the door, and before you could get in, you had to come by me. And I'd just scan your heart. That's all we're going to do. I just want to see what's in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean you can't come in if you've got something in your heart that shouldn't be there. In fact, you're the kind of folks we want here. Amen? Amen? We want you to come in, but I just want to know what's in there. Because if I know what's in there, I have a better idea of what God's going to do in your heart. You see, when I, I look at that heart and I see a broken heart, I say, praise God. This person is a candidate for God to do a work in. When I see a, 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 a bent knee, a bowed head, when I see those things, I'm encouraged. And, and so when you bring an awareness of your sin, and, and you know, that's something we don't see too often in today's world. In fact, sometimes preachers even have trouble using the word sin. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw himself, and he cried out, woe is me. Hey, let me, let me tell you something about that phrase, woe is me. That, that phrase means that God is about to declare an oracle. In, in the Hebrew language, when you wanted to bless somebody, it was called an oracle of blessing. And so you would bless them. Blessed is the man who? Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. That's a blessing. That's an oracle of God. Well, the opposite of that is a curse of God. And that oracle begins with the word woe. And if you look in, in, in uh, Isaiah 5, he uses that word woe on several occasions. Look in chapter 5, verse 11, 18, 21. Uh, we, we won't do it right now, but if you'll just mark that, you'll find that he's saying woe to the people and he's calling out a specific sin that evokes that curse. Woe are you, woe are you, woe are you. He, he was like the proverbial Baptist preacher, he had that long index finger and he was laying it on the nose of them, you know. He was letting them have it. And then all of a sudden, chapter 6, he gets into the presence of God and the finger turns from going that way to going this way. And when Isaiah got into the presence of God, what did he cry out? Woe is me. Oh, I remember carrying such a heavy burden of sin. My high school years. I tried to clean up my life. I was known as a good kid. I was a decent athlete. I had a college scholarship. I, I didn't drink or smoke or cuss or run with folks that do. If you'd have asked my high school student body, they'd say, Tommy's a good guy. Tommy's a Christian. 
when I had all the outward trappings of religion, I'd never seen my heart the way God saw it. And about six weeks before I graduated from high school, God took the blinders off of me, and I began to see my sinful heart. And when I did, it broke my heart. And I'm so thankful God was patient with this Baptist good kid, patient to show me that my sin caused Jesus to have to die. And Jesus absorbed the wrath of a holy God my sin deserved. Jesus took that in his body on the tree. Now listen, after that spring night in 1964, when God forever changed my life, when I would go back to church, realizing who God was and who I was, when God began to help me to understand what true worship really is. My dear friend, if you bring a broken heart, a bowed head, or a bent knee to church, you're a prime candidate to have a moment of destiny. Spurgeon was right. God can't do anything with us until, first of all, he undoes us. We have to be undone before we can be done. Here's the last thing I would encourage you to bring in 2019. Bring your broken hearts, 2019. If you've got a broken heart, bring them. The point's a place to come. Amen? Amen? Can I have a witness? If you've got a broken heart, I can't think of a better place to bring it than to the point, into the presence of God. Bring your bowed head. You're, you're, you're sorry for your sin. Hey, this is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And bring that bowed head to this place. Bring that bent knee recognizing who he is. But then lastly, bring your open hand. Bring your open hand. What did he say? Here am I. <laughs> Send me. You know what, what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, now I want to lay my agenda down. I want to do what you want me to do. He was basically saying this, Lord, do in me anything you need to do in order to do through me anything you want to do. Hey, did you come today with an open hand? Did you come today saying, Lord, here am I. Use me, send me in any way that you want to. You see, that's the natural outcome of recognizing our sin, repenting of our sins in the presence of a holy God, realizing who he is, and saying, Lord, now that, that you've forgiven me, you've given me your grace, the only rational thing to do is, Lord, here am I. Use me any way you want to. See, I, I, just, I, I just don't think in the church we ought to have to beg people to serve God. We need to lift them up and let them see a true vision of who God is. Once Isaiah had experienced God's wonderful forgiveness, his only response was, Lord, I want to serve you. Well, if we bring those things real quickly, and I'm, I won't take just a minute to do this, here's what we can take home. Same thing Isaiah took home. He took home the forgiveness of sin, number one. Isn't that right? The forgiveness of sin. He says, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is 
purged. He took a white hot coal off the altar and touched his lips, the most sensitive part of the body. You know what he's saying? He's saying that there is no forgiveness without sacrifice. It was a picture. He took the coal off the altar, which pictured that one day our Lord Jesus was going to come, and he was going to be that lamb slain on the altar before the foundation of the world. And when that sizzling hot cold touched his lips, it was screaming, there is no painless cure for sin. Peter said, Jesus suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. My friend, you can take home your sins being forgiven. You can take home a forgiven, clean heart today. If you bring a broken heart, bowed head, bent knee, and open hand, you can take home that clean heart. Number two, you can take home the voice of God. It's interesting what he says here. He says in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Some translations have it, and I heard the voice of the Lord. Holman puts, then I heard the voice of the Lord. And I think that carries the right sense. He said, then, after that, when was it he heard the voice of God? After his sins were forgiven. After his sins were forgiven. Then he heard the voice of the Lord. How long has it been since you have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has spoken to your heart? Then I heard the voice of God. The last thing he took home, here it is. He took home a surrendered heart. Here am I. Here am I. Send me. He didn't say, what's in it for me? He didn't say, what's the salary? What are the retirement benefits? He signed a blank check on his whole life. He didn't try to strike a bargain with God. He didn't attempt to negotiate a compromise. God called, Isaiah answered. God commanded, Isaiah obeyed. Such an unconditional response comes only from the heart of one who has seen the vision and met with God. Well, the year was 70 B.C. Rome had sent their major, most famous general to conquer the Holy Land. His name was Pompey. Most decorated Roman general in history. If you had one triumphant entry in your name, that made you legendary. Pompey had three. Three triumphant entries in his honor. When Pompey got to the Holy Land and started marching toward Jerusalem, According to William Barclay, he was met with an entourage from the high priest who begged Pompey to not desecrate their temple. They knew they couldn't defeat Pompey. They were already acquiescing to defeat. But they begged him not to desecrate their temple. He pushed on past them, went into the city of Jerusalem, went up to the temple area, went, in, went through the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, went on into the holy place, and it became obvious he is headed to the Holy of Holies. 
Again, the high priest stepped in front of the general and begged him, please, our high priest only goes in here once a year. Please don't desecrate our temple. According to history, Pompey pushed him aside, lifted the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and that pagan Roman general walked into that holy place. But history records that he didn't stay very long. He came out with a rather puzzled look on his face, and this is what he said. Why, there is nothing in that place but darkness. Isn't that interesting? That in the same place where Isaiah saw the Lord, Pompey saw nothing but darkness. What's the difference? Could it be that Isaiah brought a broken heart, bowed head, bent knee, an open hand, while Pompey brought unbelief, pride, arrogance? You see, it is true. What you bring to church limits and defines what you take home. My question is this, what did you bring to church today? And what will you take home?